Hi again, this is Jerry Salai, Chief Strategist at Tristio Investment Advisors, and I'm speaking with uh, my colleague, John Carvely, a Chief Economist at Tristio Investment Advisors. Hi, John. Hi, Jerry. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you. As, as we get into your year end, it, it's really nice that you're spending the time with me to basically talk about tapering, because that's all we're talking about now, isn't it? Who's going to taper first? Why are they tapering? What will tapering do? So if it's okay with you, can we have a conversation about this? Sure. Sure. All right. First of all, we're taping for a reason. And the reason is that we went into something called quantitative easing, which we've talked about before. Can you give us a brief background, if you don't mind, the history of quantitative easing in terms of the world and then maybe the U.S., and then the history of how we actually get out of this quantitative easing in terms of tapering and then actual balance sheet reduction? Sure. Like quantitative easing um, is, is not necessarily that new. It, I mean, you can argue that people were doing it in the 1930s. The U.S. was probably doing it, and so was the Bank of Japan at that time. But in its modern form, it really started with Japan in, in 2001. Uh, as everybody knows, Japan had its lost decade in the 1990s after the boom ended. The economy was very weak. Inflation was uh, extremely low, even negative. And uh, interest rates had gone zero, and they'd actually gone negative in Japan at that time. Uh, and so Japan finally um, went all the way to quantitative easing. And what that means is uh, the Bank of Japan buying bonds and indeed other assets as well. Quantitative easing is usually about buying government bonds, but it can be about mortgage bonds, corporate bonds, equities. In theory, it can be buying property. It can be any asset. Um, so, I mean, Japan did that in, in the early 2000s. And then along came the global financial crisis. And the other countries started to do quantitative easing big time. So the US in particular, but also the UK, the Eurozone, Switzerland, Sweden, a whole, a whole slew of countries started to do it because they got interest rates down to zero. They couldn't cut them any lower, or at least not much lower. You can go a little bit negative, but not much lower. And, and so they started to, to, to do the quantitative easing with the objective of stimulating the economy, particularly by lowering longer term yields. Obviously, you can lower short-term interest rates, but uh, by doing quantitative easing, you're buying bonds and tending to lower long-term interest rates. So that was really uh, how it all started. And if you recall, in, in the US, we had so-called QE1, which was the first uh, quantitative easing. And then later, we had QE2, and then we had QE3. Um, with COVID, we've got uh, QE4, perhaps. Um, uh, and so each time, uh, you have a sort of uplift in the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve because it's buying all these bonds and sticking them on its balance sheet. So that's that's really the history of it. And of course, at some point, you may want to actually try to reduce uh, the bonds on the balance sheet. And that's where tapering comes in. Okay. So basically, you're saying central banks can go out there and buy different assets and stuff them in the balance sheet and effectively try to drag long-end yields down, or if you're buying equities or if you're buying corporate bonds, you're trying to bolster those parts of your financial system, which makes a lot of sense in times of distress. Right. Did this work, in your opinion? I think it does work, and I think it did work. There's there's a big argument about whether it's more important sometimes than others. So, for example, in 2008 and early 2009, when the Federal Reserve first did uh, its quantitative easing, uh, the markets were in turmoil, especially in late 2008 after the Lehman crisis. And so the effect then, I think, really was to very much stabilize the market, stabilize expectations, um, bring bond yields down, 
um, improve liquidity in the market. Um, and it, it sort of stemmed the panic, if you like. Now, fast forward a few years where the economy is growing, but it's growing rather sluggishly and inflation's a bit low and you do more quantitative easing. There's a question mark as to how much effect that really has at that point. Um, I think it does have an effect, but the the mechanism is primarily through uh, pushing up asset prices. Um, so we've seen that, obviously, with the uh, performance of, of stock markets over the years. So, so, so you'd argue for the animal spirits argument, which is basically it helps confidence, it helps the system remain liquid, and it provides a sort of oomph to banks to go out there and lend to people. It provides an oomph to stock markets, maybe credit markets as well, corporate credit in terms of you know, you're, you're not seeing the negative headlines all the time about a company going bust because banks are willing to lend the money, extend credit, and people are willing to take risk. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the central bank goes out and buys the bonds. And so obviously various uh, investment managers, pension funds, uh, um, uh, investment funds, they've sold the bonds to the central banks and now they've got cash. So what do they buy? Uh, and chances are they go and buy other bonds. They go and buy corporate bonds. Maybe they buy equities. And, and so it kind of spreads uh, across you know, the whole range of, of investments. Now, when uh, stock markets go up, that makes consumers better off. And so they're more likely to spend more money, so-called wealth effects. It also makes companies more likely to invest because they can see that the value of, of a successful company is higher. So it's, it's more attractive to invest in, in real equipment and uh, factories and machinery and so on. But that's how it's supposed to work. Now, I think one of the issues back in the uh, mid 2000s or sorry, 2010s was that a lot of companies were uh, trying to improve their balance sheets. They weren't really looking to invest. They'd been shocked by the global financial crisis, the big recession. They were actually just trying to improve their balance sheet. Uh, so even though their stock price was going up, they, they weren't going to invest more. And the same with a lot of consumers. Yes, their stocks were going up, but house prices at that time were still low. They'd crashed uh, after the after the bubble and they were still low. People had lost jobs, they'd lost businesses. So they weren't in a big hurry, even though their, their, their stock valuations were rising. They didn't immediately go out and spend more money. So you can raise asset prices, but it's the second part of the effect, uh, whether raising asset prices actually feeds through into boosting the economy. That was what was really lacking. And you mentioned banks. And of course, uh, yes, quantitative easing supports banks in lending. But of course, banks at that time were trying to uh, improve their balance sheets as well. They were trying to get capital up. They had to as part of the, the new regulations. Uh, and so they too tended to take extra liquidity uh, as just a way to strengthen their position rather than make a lot of new loans. So I think that's why the quantitative easing at that point, it was really facing so many headwinds. Um, but that's why we didn't get a really strong recovery in the last cycle. One of the things that struck me back in the financial crisis, and like you said, in 2010, 2011, was that Eurozone banks seemed to be doing exactly what you just said, where they said, look, we, we may quote unquote have weathered the crisis, but we sure as heck ain't going to lend you money because they were looking around and saying, you know, I, we, we, it seemed, especially in Italy and, and the whole crisis that we had with the, you know, Italy, Spain, Portugal and bits of Ireland and stuff coming out of the, you know, the global financial crisis was that it seemed like banks were very, very reluctant to lend. And you could actually make the case corporations were very reluctant to borrow. Would, would that be a problem with QE if it's, 
Yeah, I think the central bank was talking about the, the European Central Bank was talking about transmission, where their policies weren't being transmitted into the real economy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, I think particularly in the eurozone, where in some countries, several countries really, and important countries like Germany and Italy, the banking systems were very weak back then, and they're, they're still comparatively weak. But back then, they had very low capital ratios. They had quite a lot of bad loans. And so even though the quantitative easing helped their position, they, they were quite reluctant to lend. And also, as you say, people were reluctant to borrow uh, as well. Uh, and so the banking system really didn't support the recovery uh, back in 2009 to, to 12. Uh, it's different this time, interestingly. I mean, um, we're still in, in the middle of COVID, of course, but if we can get out of it over the next few months, the banks are in a much stronger position now. And indeed, we have seen that. We've seen bank lending rising in most countries in recent months. Those are all positive signs. So we've got this positive background. Again, let's, let's focus, I guess, on the U.S. for now. And we're about to start accelerated ta tapering. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, just to be really clear about it, the, the Fed uh, has been buying about $120 billion a month uh, of bonds, two-thirds uh, treasuries and, and one-third mortgage-backed securities. And they announced, I think it was September, that they were going to scale that back gradually um, so they'd reduce by 15 billion each every month. So they'd be gradually reducing the amount they they they, they buy uh, to zero by the middle of next year. And what they announced uh, this week was that they would uh, accelerate that so that they would finish by the end of March. Um, now, in the big scheme of things, it, it doesn't really make that much difference. In fact, some people think that the, the total amount that you're, you're purchasing matters more than how much you're doing each month. Um, so they're still doing the same amount in total. They will still get to the same end place in terms of uh, total purchases of bonds. Where I think it does matter, though, is that the Fed has made it clear that they won't raise interest rates until they finish tapering. Now, until this week, they were, they were going to finish tapering in the middle of next year. So that means they wouldn't have been able to raise rates until at least July. Now they're in a position to raise rates in April. And I think that's, that's the significance of this change. So by bringing it forward, potentially forward, right? They don't have to raise rates in April or late March, whatever. They, they, very, they can just kick yeah. that can down the road as long as they want. That's true. But, that's a very important point to make, that uh, it gives them the option, but um, they they're definitely are clear that whether or not they raise rates in April will depend on circumstances then. And with the Omicron variant, obviously there's more uncertainty about that than there was a few weeks ago. Okay. One thing we've talked about is, okay, they're going to taper. How did it go last time in the States when they tapered and then they had to do two things as, as far as we're concerned? One is actually start reducing their balance sheet and two, raise rates. Yes, so you're right. There's 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 several steps in this. So uh, back in 2013, uh, then Fed Chairman Bernanke uh, said that he, that he said unexpectedly um, in a speech that uh, the economy was strong enough that um, they should probably start tapering soon. Uh, and the markets really were not expecting this, and we saw quite a strong reaction. We saw stock markets sell off several percent over the next two or three days, and we saw bond yields rise uh, about 100 basis points over the next few weeks. So and and that was a famous taper tantrum, right? That was the taper tantrum. Uh, and uh, I think um, uh, the chairman, Bernanke, was rather surprised by this, taken aback. Uh, he obviously hadn't judged um, the audience uh, correctly. He, th he thought it was more obvious than that. We've seen this before where where uh, um, central banks have suddenly said something which to them is 
just follows naturally from the current economic position, but the markets hadn't spotted it. Um, but anyway, so as a result of that, I think the tapering that year was somewhat delayed. So they only got to it at the end of the year and they did they did successfully taper. Um, and then the next question was, would they actually reduce the amounts outstanding? Because when you taper, you, you taper how much you knew you're buying, but then um, the maturing bonds, they, they do replace those. So there's a separate decision to be taken as to at what point do you actually start to reduce the balance sheet by allowing the... Uh, the maturing bonds to run off. So they started to do that as well. Um, In your opinion, John, is is it which part is the most important? Tapering or actually reducing the balance sheet? Um, I I wouldn't put one above the other, really. I think they're all signals um, as to how how big the balance sheet is going to be. Because when you start tapering, of course, because they hadn't started tapering, they could have continued potentially $120 billion uh, every month indefinitely. So that already tells you that uh, they're going to reduce it, um, you know, by a certain amount. Um, but I, I think in the end, I think probably it's interest rates that matter most. So I think it's important to see the whole tapering uh, debate and even the quantitative easing debate as being about uh, interest rates. Okay. So when the Fed, you know, Bernanke went through his taper tantrum and started tapering the bond purchases, they actually did, like you said got to the point where they were stable. They weren't buying bonds in terms of trying to, you know, do quantitative easing anymore. And then they started to reduce the balance sheet because I remember they published how many they were going to quit buying per month and they had this progressive, you know, forward-looking statement. How did that go? It didn't get very far, actually. They, they did reduce a little bit, um, but I think everybody then stopped looking at that and then started to look at interest rates. And they started to raise interest rates, of course, I think it was 2017 uh, when they started to raise rates very gradually. I, I do remember that President Trump at the time seemed to be trolling, I guess it was uh, Fed Chairman Powell, by saying he was doing quantitative tightening. Is that correct? Where where Powell was actually, you know, reducing the balance sheet and it seemed like Trump was, wasn't very happy with this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, he's a property developer, so he likes uh, low interest rates. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's true. If, if if quantitative easing is going to have an impact on stimulating the economy, then one has to assume that quantitative tightening, to some extent, has the opposite effect. Uh, I think the, the Fed's view was, well, first of all, they, they don't really know how much effect it's going to have. And this is why they prefer to use interest rates and, and, and keep the balance sheet sort of fairly quiet. Right. Um, so, so rather than say, right, we're going to we're going to tighten monetary policy by reducing the balance sheet and leave interest rates where they are. They prefer to make uh, interest rates, uh, you know, take the running. So, I mean, they could actually just keep the quant- uh, the balance sheet unchanged. They could just say, we're not buying any more bonds. As they roll off, we'll, we'll basically reinvest the money and buy more. But we're, we're actually not moving them out that much. Like you said, keep it quiet. They could, they could do, do that. that. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a certain discomfort in keeping the balance sheet large because to the extent that they raise interest rates, uh, then of course the, the central bank may actually start making a loss because uh, it has to pay out interest on, on reserves, which is the other side of the balance sheet of the holdings. And if they're raising interest rates on those overnight uh, um, reserve interest rates, and they're only getting a certain coupon from the government, then at some point the, the central bank itself could be losing money. Um, it's not really a problem you know, in any full sense. Uh, it's just like a slight embarrassment that the central bank would could potentially have to be bailed out by the government. 
Well, it could be one of those things where they just sell all their 10s and 30s and 20s and, you know, basically move down the duration curve to the point where they're taking advantage of the fact that they're raising short-term rates, yeah? Yeah, yeah, they could do that. Which would be a bit cheeky, I think, as far as yeah. central bank activities. Yeah, well, then you're getting into something like a sort of reverse twist, if you remember the Operation Twist. Yes, when all the that's right. From, from short rates to long rates in terms of the purchases. Um, so you're doing the opposite, which is thought to be relatively uh, more more of a sort of tightening approach than, than to do it on a balance basis. But not that we're looking too far ahead here, but wouldn't that steepen the yield curve? Yeah, I mean, um, you, you would anticipate in general that uh, quantitative tightening uh, and even tapering is potentially going to steepen the yield curve, yes. Um, okay. Because if you think about how how much of the issuance of the central bank, oh, sorry, of governments over the last year, year and a half with COVID has been taken up by the central banks, it's huge. Now, if, if that goes back into the market, or indeed, if you simply stop buying as much, then the market's got to absorb those extra bonds. So one one would imagine that, that yields would, would rise. Um, I mean, at the moment, we don't see much sign of this, but uh, it's certainly in the back of my mind for how things will go next year. How things how, how will things go next year, John? Well, we have a few minutes left. I mean, in terms of 22 and 2023, right? Or let's say even out five years, because we're looking at bond markets. Sticking to the U.S., They've announced they're going to finish quantitative easing, you know, the tapering the bond purchases, March 2022. Fine. We know that Chairman, Fed Chairman Powell suggested that they're not going to wait that long before they raise rates. They're not going to do what they did in the last cycle. So we're penciling in, like they did, maybe three rate hikes in 2022, maybe another three rate hikes in 2023. We'll put that in the potentially it could happen, right, category. And he suggested that they will be talking about how to reduce a balance sheet over the next few months. There was no firm announcements yesterday uh, or this week. How do you think this will pan out for both the Fed and then the US markets? Yeah, I think I think the Fed is, is focused on doing things gradually. Um, I don't think they want to upset the economic recovery. Uh, so assuming that uh, Omicron and COVID generally is increasingly tamed, then I think we'll see the economic expansion continue. I don't think tapering or slightly higher interest rates is going to stop that. I think they'd have to raise interest rates quite a lot to really tip that over, especially with inflation being relatively high. So, you know, real interest rates at the moment are, are extremely negative, even if inflation comes down next year, which it should do, uh, as some of the special factors come out, you'll still still have interest rates below inflation, even if inflation comes all the way down to 2%. They're not expecting to get to a 2% Fed funds rate uh, you know, until the end of 2023. So negative real rates, I, I can't see the economy really tipping over uh, as, as long as you've still got negative uh, real rates. So I think the, the Fed is basically thinking that inflation is not going to be a problem as long as they sort of make this signal that they're on top of things, that, that they're still um, you know, following an anti-inflation strategy. Uh, do whatever they need to, then they feel they just have to signal that. And what we'll see is that wages will stay reasonably contained and you won't get into a kind of 1970s wage price spiral. Now, I'm a little bit concerned that we could. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned that they're still moving too slowly, um, that they perhaps uh, uh, will need to do more than they currently expect. Well, we'll see. Um, but I don't think they will. I think they, they're very anxious not to, to create another big slowdown anytime soon. So I'm, I'm reasonably positive on uh, the economy. 
And given that, I think you'd have to be reasonably positive on stock markets. You can argue some valuations are high, um, but nevertheless, if the economy is growing and profits are rising, uh, it's rare for stock markets to perform that badly in that environment. I do think, though, that raising interest rates um, at the short end is going to tend to put upward pressure on long yields. And that's why I think that uh, bond yields will most likely in the US rise up to the 2 to 3% range over the next year or so. Okay, that, that seems like a pretty familiar scenario. We've, we've been through different cycles. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't changed my view. I mean, I think that the tapering is that uh, they've accelerated it slightly. It, uh, that probably makes sense given that inflation keeps on coming in higher than, than everybody thinks, everybody expects. Um, and also the uh, inflation seems to be wider, more widespread than we, we thought, say, six months ago. Um, there is some anecdotal evidence that wages are moving up as well. Um, and there's some statistical evidence supporting that, but it's not that strong at the moment. It's still mostly anecdotal. Uh, so I think these are all good reasons for the Fed moving a little bit faster, but it's still moving at, at a very gradual, measured pace, I would say. Okay. And we saw the Bank of England raise rates by 15 basis points today, taking them up to 0.25%. They haven't mentioned tapering because they didn't have to, right? They had a set amount they were going to buy. They bought yeah. it. And the ECB is basically saying nothing about ending their pandemic, you know, they're ending the pandemic buying program, but they're still quantitative easing because they still had a previous program that they haven't really, you know, announced they're going to end at any time, correct? That's right. The other one is is pretty much permanent. They've been doing that well, since they started it, basically. Uh, so, so in the last few minutes, John, I mean, what do, what do you think about the UK? Are they actually going to reduce their balance sheet at some stage? And will the ECB ever stop buying Bonds. Well, I think as far as the Bank of England is concerned, they are very focused on interest rates as, as their sort of uh, the variable that they move to, to affect the economy. And they're not uh, too concerned about the quantitative easing or the balance sheet. So I think for the Bank of England, it's all about interest rates. And uh, they'll, they probably won't move again in January, but I think February they might if, if the economy is still still looking, well, if it is, if it is looking reasonably strong. So Bank of England, I think, will will gradually raise rates over the next year. Okay, that, that makes sense. And finally, ready? Bank of Japan. You said they were one of the first big ones to start quantitative easing 20 years ago, right? Yep. yep. I mean, 20 years. That's a long time. When will they stop? Uh, I, I, <laughs> they did, they did, they did, uh, they did stop um, quantitative easing for a while in the last upswing. That's they weren't right. doing any more for a period. But they um, didn't do any balance sheet reduction, did they? I don't think they did. No, I'd have to look again. But I don't think they actually reduced very much, if at all. Um, you know, they... Uh, and to be they fair, they're very... buying stocks. They're the, one of the largest holders of Japanese equities now, right? In mm -hmm. terms of the ETF purchases. Yeah. They're, they're not just buying bonds. They're, they're buying everything. Yes. Mostly bonds. But you know, they're buying everything, yes. Will uh, it stop? Yeah, they... they um, I mean, the, the position of the Bank of, of Japan is they are still trying to achieve 2% inflation, and yet they're struggling to get it even above zero. Um, I mean, probably the effects that we're seeing at the moment in the world, this sort of inflation uh, coming through in various ways, will bring their inflation rate up over the next year. So they've had this uh, special effect of um, they've been cutting uh, mobile phone costs, and that's okay. actually reduced the headline index. It Without would. that, they'd, they'd be seeing probably the highest inflation rate that they've seen for years. They'd be looking at that right now. But still, it would be under 1%. Exactly. Uh, I mean, they, it's... Yeah. So, 
So they've still got a long way to go, uh, I think. Because um, every time I look at Japan, I think they don't have the factors that we have in terms of inflation pressures because of the nature of the economy, the nature of the consumer there. And you could argue that their expectations are that prices will go lower in the future. That that's the, the anchoring effect has, has not really worked in yeah, favor have, of the Bank of Japan. They have very strong anchoring effect. I mean, if you look at nominal wages, for example, they haven't changed for about 15 years. People Correct. are still being paid exactly the same in yen terms as they were 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so when you've got that kind of sort of stability, it's a bit like the, the UK in the 19th century. Um, you know, prices either stayed the same or they went down. People just no no expectation of inflation like we have today these days. Uh, and I think Japan has got stuck there, and that's that's one of the difficulties. So the the program of the new prime minister, in fact, is to try to to push up wages. He's trying to actually adjust the tax system to encourage firms to raise wages. Uh, which is rather curious. I'm not sure if it'll work. We'll see. Um, but uh, okay. yeah, so Japan, I think, still has has enormous difficulties in getting inflation up, and I think the the size of the balance sheet there is 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 much higher than in the U.S., for example, or the U.K., and it's likely to stay there. Thank you, John. And I, I guess I did lie when I said the last one because I actually am curious about the very last one, and that would be the Swiss National Bank who is the other <laughs> central bank that has basically been buying whatever they can, including U.S. equities, to try to weaken the Swiss franc, to be fair, but also to do quantitative easing. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, the U.S. Treasury calls it currency manipulation. And uh, I'll give you a deal. I mean, they, they've, been, they've been trying to stop the currency going up for years. Uh, and they've, they've, they've gone to negative interest rates and they've gone to quantitative easing big time to, to do it. Um, There's no sign of them tapering anything in the near term. I don't term. see them abandon. The trouble is, if they abandon that policy, the Swiss franc would go through the roof, and uh, and they feel that that would be very damaging. So I don't see them changing that policy. That's amazing, <laughs> amazing. The worlds we live in. John, thank you very much. And I know we're near to Christmas, so you know, Merry Christmas to all the podcast listeners. And I hope this is informative. And again, thank you very much for your time, John. Yeah, thanks, Jerry, and happy Christmas to all. All right, take care.